Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Hey, this is Sam Hells, presenter and producer of The Profile Podcast. Over the next few weeks, we're bringing you these bonus episodes where my colleague Andy Peck chats to the best and brightest experts on Christian leadership. Andy has spent 17 years conducting these brilliant conversations. We're bringing you the very best of them in these special midweek editions of The Profile Podcast. You're listening to The Profile Well, Christmas is coming, and once again, you have the chance to remember the wonder of God become man in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're involved in church services, in leading or preaching, or maybe running a ministry, you may well be thinking of creative ways to reflect on the many themes of Christmas, and perhaps with different kinds of services and different aims, you'll be wondering how you're going to communicate. Well, what if what you know about Christmas needs changing? What if the classic nativity play is as close to reality as Dickens' Christmas Carol? Well, this week I'm joined by a man who's been helping Christians in leadership take a fresh look at the Christmas story. Uh, Reverend Dr. David Instone Brewer is an honorary research fellow at Tyndale House, Cambridge. He has authored several books on the Jewish background to the New Testament and is a member of the Committee for Bible Translation, NIV. He's also a regular columnist for Premier Christianity. So, David, fantastic to have you along on the Leadership Show. Hi, great to be with you, and uh, lovely to have such a big, big up for me, describing <laughs> me. <laughs> well, an honorary senior research fellow does sound fun. So what kind of things are you researching at the moment? Well, uh, I, at the moment, I'm working on the Greek and Hebrew text, particularly the grammar behind it, so as I can add that to the uh, tagging on step Bible, which is a way in which you can read your Bible with the Greek and Hebrew and not know any Greek and Hebrew and have all the expert uh, connections there for you. Oh, fabulous. So it sounds, uh, sounds like something many people would uh, want to dip into, particularly people yeah. like myself who are not, a, not scholars in those languages. Well, just uh, send your browser to stepbible.org and you're there and you're in for free. Oh, brilliant. Oh, good stuff. So anyway, my, 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 my own memory of, um, of Christmas growing up um, was the classic nativity show that um, most people are aware of. Your memory of Christmas growing up? I had a, a German upbringing. My mother's German. And uh, so we would sing carols around the Christmas tree and uh, we would sing them in German. Oh, well, wow. Yeah, lovely. And of course, we got to open our presents on Christmas Eve so the parents got to lie in. <laughs> oh, very good. Excellent. I'm, I'm not intentionally uh, setting you up to ruin people's understanding of Christmas, but... Um, obviously, clearly, if we want the Bible to set our agenda for life and, and understanding our faith, we want to understand what's going on. So perhaps if I outline what I think most people would understand and then you can uh, amend it for us. <laughs> so the cl classic nativity star narrative is that Mary and Joseph unexpectedly received news of a census, meaning they have to return to Joseph's ancestral home in Bethlehem, just as Mary is due to give birth. Uh, so they travel down from Nazareth to Beth Bethlehem. 
Joseph fails to make sleeping arrangements and they end up in a stable provided by an innkeeper who takes pity on them because all the local options are unavailable. The angels announce the news to the shepherds who show up closely followed by wise men who followed a star to the stable after visiting uh, King Herod. So that, that's the kind of, I guess, more or less the, the narrative many people understand. So perhaps you could amend that for us. What would you say from the Bible side of things is, is wrong uh, with that narrative? Well, first of all, a couple of things that aren't actually in the Bible. Uh, there's no in in the Bible. Uh, the, there's a word which is translated in the Latin Bibles as in, but really it's a guest room. And there's no overcrowding. The census didn't cause lots of crowds. The, the Romans weren't interested in your ancestral family tree, unlike the gospel writers. They were interested in knowing where you lived. They wanted to know which door to bang on to get your taxes when you hadn't paid up. So they wanted you to go to your house, the house where you lived. So Joseph went to the house of his parents. Was, uh, presumably he was just in temporary accommodation in Nazareth. Perhaps he was working at Sepphoris, which was doing a lot of building work at the time, just down the road from Nazareth. So he went to, to Bethlehem where his parents lived and there wouldn't have been many other people there. It's just a village of uh, a couple of dozen houses at the time and definitely no inn. Sure, and, and there's a, a Greek word which the NIV 1984 translated as inn and now the 2011 version talks of as living room. I, I don't know if that was, I, I introduced you as part of the Committee for Bible Translation. Was that part of your text or someone else's? Is someone else brought up and uh, everyone agreed. Uh, we, we all knew that it, the, the word catalum doesn't mean uh, an inn. It's, a, it's not so much a living room, it's a guest room. Uh, hospitality was a very important part of Jewish life and uh, pagan life as well. Uh, you always gave up a room to a guest if they arrived. And if you had sufficient means, you already had a room available for guests to sleep in. Your catalum was a, a, a normal part of your house your guest room. So, so talk to us about the, the kind of atmosphere that might have been around with the family, that Joseph and Mary. Clearly, there's some odd stuff going on. So Mary spends a long time with Elizabeth during her pregnancy. So uh, doubtless there would have been some scandal associated with the fact that she was pregnant and not yet formally married to, to Joseph, although, of course, betrothal in that day was a little different from engagement in ours. Sure, betrothal was a very serious thing, but she wasn't even betrothed to start with. She was pregnant uh, far too early. And uh, the number of pregnant brides in Israel would have been nearly zero. It was a very unusual event and scandalous, absolutely scandalous. And so no wonder she ran away from home, so to speak. And so when um, she went to see Joseph's parents in Bethlehem with him, uh, that was not going to be a nice visit because uh, there she was bearing someone who everyone would call a mamzer. Uh, a mamzer is the Hebrew term for a bastard. That's a, a stigma that Jesus would have had to bear throughout his life, uh, always being the person who, well, like the heckler in John 8, he says, who's your father? And he says, at least we weren't born from fornication. Yeah, everyone knew this about Jesus. And uh, yeah, Mary realized that this was going to be her heritage and uh, she was going to pass it on to her son so so when we when it talks about the manger i guess that is the what people sometimes signal as being or oh, that must have been a stable this is actually to do with the kind of living quarters in in those days 
No, it's um, people didn't live with their animals unless they're really poor. And there's certainly no reason to think that uh, uh, Joseph's family were right at the bottom of the heap. Uh, you, you have a, um, a courtyard usually with uh, three families around the courtyard. The families would have living quarters and uh, the courtyard would open out into the midden heap and then uh, any animal accommodation would be opening out into that area. So that you, you lived above your animals or next to them, but you didn't live uh, in the same room as your animals. But for some reason, no one wants to give uh, Mary and Joseph uh, their guest room. There, there must have been several houses in the village which had a guest room. Uh, some of them might have been occupied by people who similarly had relatives in the village, but uh, most of them would have been available. And someone in that village was very keen that they would not stay in a guest room. And the only family, as I can think of, had the motive to be that nasty to a pregnant lady uh, who's just about to give birth would be Joseph's mother. Well, wow. uh, yes. Joseph's parents were so upset about him marrying this clearly immoral woman who didn't even claim that Joseph was a father and uh, th then bring her to their respectable home. No way. They're not. She's not going to get the guest room. They can stay with the animals if they want. Uh, because we don't want to completely throw them out. And none of the neighbours are going to open up their houses because then they won't get on with the, the nice family of Joseph, who they're going to see in synagogue next Sabbath. So, so first century readers, of course, this, this kind of culture would have been very apparent. They would have read between the lines in a way that uh, 21st century readers often don't and have created this kind of nativity scene that's very, very different. Yeah, uh, it's a lovely story, isn't it? That uh, you have the, the baby in the uh, manger. Of course, the manger is where the animals are going to be wanting to get their food. There's no good telling them there's a baby in the way. So the parents are going to be having to push the cows and the sheep away from the manger to keep, let the baby perhaps be quiet, like in the carols we sing. And oh, it would have been a mess, absolute mess. So the the, the timing of, of the, the shepherds, uh, being out in the fields and and then being sent to the state where, wherever they where the child was that that kind of resonates yes it's not the sort of thing you'd invent that's the sort of a historical nugget which is really precious to someone who wants to find out what the facts are in the gospels because if you were going to invent the story you'd say that the mayor came along to have a look <laughs> the, the the rabbi from the synagogue came along or something like that but Shepherds, they were right at the bottom of the heap. Uh, when, when rabbis wanted to um, uh, define whether bread was um, still good enough to be tithed or not, or whether you could say it's mouldy, it's stale, we'll throw it out and we won't tithe it. They said, well, if it's good enough for a shepherd to eat, then it's still bread. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> it's garbage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the shepherds were the people who scoured the bins for leftover food. They weren't paid much. They were regarded as irreligious because they had to work on the Sabbath and they had no skills, which uh, so they gave them children's work, uh, like uh, looking after animals. Yeah. yeah uh, so you wouldn't invent that story that it's the shepherds who came to honor this baby. They were the bottom of the heap. And so we've we've removed the the innkeeper from the whole story. We've still got shepherds in there, but um, obviously most nativity scenes have have wise men turning up at the time. And of course, the, the Matthew account talks about they came to where the child was, which may indicate that Jesus was a bit older than 
birth at that time. Would that be accurate? Yeah, it's very likely that uh, this was uh, after the, um, the children grown up a little bit. You remember Herod had the children under two killed, so he wasn't expecting a newborn baby. He was expecting someone who's a little bit of maybe even a little bit of a toddler. So it, this some time had passed, and uh, the, the wise men. That, that's another uh, something we have to say is very likely to be accurate because you wouldn't make it up. These are foreigners; they're not Jews, and they're stargazers, for, which for Jews would be near to star worshippers, the, the the worst of the worst Gentiles. And to have those as being the ones that honor Jesus is something that oh, it is. <laughs> It, it, having them and the shepherds, it's a bit like in modern equivalent would be having a homeless drug addict coming along like the shepherds and having some foreign drug barons coming along as well. <laughs> yeah, these were not honoured guests. These were the uh, ghastly people, but they came to honour Jesus. And it's to a historian, that's reliable nuggets because you wouldn't make it up. And the, the gold and um, frankincense and myrrh that was given is there any indication that maybe that that would have financed the trip to, to Egypt, do you think? It's a lovely guess, and maybe it's true. You know, we don't know how much gold is given. Uh, people bring gifts. The Magi weren't necessarily rich people. You know, we, we put crowns on them. Uh, Magi were scholars, and uh, they were, uh, if they had a good position with a, 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 a nice uh, employer, then they might make some money, but uh, they wouldn't have brought much gold. Yeah, but any gold would be useful if they're going to have to be a refugee in Egypt and suddenly they have nothing, nothing to their name and they're worse off than refugees nowadays uh, sitting in UN camps. Yeah. And it looks as if at the end of the account that Mary and Joseph intended to return from Egypt to the Bethlehem area. And, and so that suggests to me that maybe the scandal in Nazareth made that not, a better, not the best place to go back to. It really wasn't a good place to go to. Now, Palestine's a small country, and uh, news like this gets around. Uh, an unmarried man like Jesus is such an abnormality in Palestine. It, the, the first commandment, according to Jews, is found at the beginning of the Torah. Uh, you must be fruitful and multiply. So every male Jew got married if they possibly could. And if you weren't married by the time you were 20, people got suspicious. They wouldn't let you educate their son on your own. Hint, hint, oh, wow. wink, wink. You couldn't even look after animals on your own. It was so suspicious that you hadn't got married. There must be something weird about you. Gracious. And Jesus had to go through his life like that. Uh, there really wasn't any good place in Palestine for the family to go to. So you've, you've already indicated that, that they regarded Jesus as illegitimate, uh, that they regarded him as a bit weird. Um, this is all perhaps news to some who are perhaps a bit shocked listening to this. <laughs> well, for a historian, as I said, this is this is gold dust because the Gospels they they have to meet criticisms head on. That's the only way you can meet uh, you can deal with something which detractors are going to point to and say, "Hey, but hang on, you're telling me about this wonderful Jesus. I've heard such and such." So you have to state the things that the detractors are going to say, but put them in as best light as possible. And the gospel writers did that. Uh, but <laughs> you can't get away from some of these facts. And uh, the, the, the fact that they are there in the gospels means that they almost certainly did happen because they're not things that you would put in if you could get away with it. 
So obviously some critics, some more liberal scholars or non-believers look at the Matthew account and the Luke account and say, well, they're very different. And that's a proof that either one or the other didn't happen or neither happened. Um, what would you say to that as that criticism? Neither account is complete. Neither account has all the details. And it's not surprising that one has different details to another one. But Luke, he has an emphasis throughout his gospel on the poor people, the disadvantaged people, the women. And so it's nice that he picks this, that the shepherds came along to honour Jesus. And Matthew, he has an emphasis on kings and rulers and Jesus as the kingly Messiah. And so it's not surprising that he picks up that detail. They're not going to tell every detail of everything. And so at the, at the, the narrative of the, uh, his birth, they're picking on different things, which, yeah, it's great. Sure. And and there's no, there's no contradiction. No contradiction. There no. no, there isn't any necessary contradiction. Uh, if you want to simplify things right down, you just say, oh, well, you know, they, they, they got their stories completely wrong. But scholars for a long time have been able to show that, yes, you can put this in, this in, this in, this in, and it all fits together. So, so David, um, I mean, in the UK, kind of Christendom in some quarters is kind of hanging on. Uh, and uh, you know, Christmas is a time when many might attend a church service or carol service. Uh, I understand pre-COVID Christmas attendance at Church of England services had risen. Uh, midnight mass in UK cathedrals has become unexpectedly popular. And so people are kind of expecting the narrative they remember from childhood, the nativity play. Um, I mean, if you were preaching at one of those events, how would you communicate all this kind of stuff uh, without kind of losing everyone? <laughs> yeah, people like to have the same, the same. The, uh, Christmas is a bit of um, nostalgia. But also people like to have the facts. They're very aware that... Uh, there's fake news and there's uh, fan fiction, and they're never quite sure what to believe. But if you present facts to them, they, it, oh, that's interesting. And so they pick their ears up. But perhaps I'm not the best person to talk about this because I was banned from ever speaking to the scouts and guides again in an area where I was a minister because I said, now, kids, um, there's uh, two people I'm going to mention one of them is a historical person and the other one isn't. The first one is Jesus Christ and the other one is Santa Claus. And they all put their hands up for Santa Claus being the <laughs> not historical. And their parents were horrified that their precious young ones knew the truth. Oh, and they, I was officially banned. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, but we so, yeah, sometimes people like to um, uh, fill in the, the, the story of the baby Jesus with unhistorical details. But I think that people are interested in facts. Good. Is, is there a particular book or place that people would go if they want to learn more of this? Um, commentaries that you recommend? Um, I, actually, the Christianity um, site, you know, the premier site, mm. uh, has a very good uh, article, happens to be by me, which uh, pulls most of this together. And so you, you're highlighting it this week, I think. Well, I just want to, while we've got you on, on the show, uh, it's been great to talk about Christmas, but it's also, obviously, you're a, a biblical scholar. And um, I'm just interested in, um, maybe there are some aspects of faith over, you know, maybe your lifetime, or certainly my lifetime, that that we now better understand because of the kind of work that you guys do. And I just wonder if you wanted to just highlight one, one or two. 
Well, the, the work in the text of the um, New Testament has been particularly good. Uh, we've uh, used computers a lot to make sure that we know exactly what the original text was. And uh, th there's still a few disputes, but now the, the foundation is very secure. Um, also in history, we've uh, got a lot more insights, uh, work like Richard Borkham's on the eyewitnesses and uh, some of the work that I've done on the traditions of the rabbis in the year of the New Testament, uh, finding sources that do date back to the time of Jesus. So we now have a, a lot of corroboration and a uh, lot of coherence with other historical documents. Actually, I, the, one of the pieces of research I did early in my career is something which <laughs> very uh, strangely for a scholar uh, impacts on ordinary people's lives. Uh, I did uh, work on divorce and remarriage, uh, seeing the Jewish background behind that because having read pretty much everything that the Pharisees ever wrote for my PhD research, I realized that what we had in the Gospels on divorce uh, was speaking right into their context and speaking their language. And I was able to unpick that and understand it in terms that a first century Jew would have understood it. So now we have a much better understanding of Jesus' teaching on divorce. So yeah, lots of things change. There's increasing understanding that Jesus uh, might have been uh, like a classic rabbi, but my understanding was that that we didn't know for sure how rabbis operated in that first century. You're telling me that there's been more recent research to suggest that rabbis did function a bit like Jesus did with his disciples? Yeah, uh, we know quite a bit about the rabbis in the first century, not as much as we'd like, of course. Mm -hmm. the, the difficulty is always uh, separating the early sources from the later sources. And so there's been a lot of work on how to date uh, even as particular phrases and then lines and then paragraphs within the writings of the rabbis, which span several centuries. And it's uh, I, I've started bringing out uh, a, a compilation of all the sources that date arguably back before 70 called Traditions of the Rabbis in the Year of the New Testament. And so from that, you get uh, sources as um, to the age of, uh, well, not quite as old as the Qumran documents, the Dead Sea Scroll documents, but they, they come from New Testament times. And we can see the changes that took place during Jesus' lifetime and then immediately after, and then we see the differences. So, so the idea that, that um, disciples of a rabbi would imitate that rabbi in, in their, their lifestyle is, is now, regarded as normal as as, as okay or is, yes not certainly sure? no 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 they they, they took imitation quite uh, um to an extreme extent sometimes so there's a uh, one there's one rabbi who's told about how he went and followed his master everywhere he followed him into the toilet to see how he did his functions there oh, and uh, then he he hid under his master's bed to see how he enacted with his wife. Word. <laughs> but, but his master found him under the bed and pulled him out, <laughs> reprimanded him. Gracious. Yeah, they, they did want to do exactly like their masters. Sure. So, so hence are the discipleship practices for today in, in terms of the disciples would have imitated Jesus. And, and, and that's kind of a model for us today is, 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 is now rooted very much in, in early church history. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's a model that uh, fits into our society, but certainly it was a normal part of their society. And they had uh, other rabbis also had an inner circle of disciples. They had two or three disciples, like Jesus had James, John and Peter, who always accompanied him, even up the mountain when he's talking to Elijah and Moses. 
So it, it, it's a, his life does parallel very much a, a Jewish rabbi, except, of course, he didn't have a pulpit. He didn't have a synagogue that welcomed him. He was itinerant and uh, he was he had to preach on hillsides. He was very much an outcast. So it's kind of a, a, a kind of Wesley model almost of you know John Wesley being thrown out of the Church of England and and having to preach in graveyards and 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 out outdoors. That was the kind of how it would have been perceived. I hadn't thought about that, and uh, but of course Jesus didn't have a horse. <laughs> That's true enough. Yes, yeah, fascinating. Well, um, David, you have um, a website where people can uh, discover more of some of your material. Um, you like to share a little bit what's on there? Yeah, I'm currently writing a, a series of books called Bible Contexts. That's uh, the um, the context of the Bible compared to ancient literature, or the, uh, compared to um, the uh, a theology that was extant at the time of Jesus, and uh, the context of the Bible with science, uh, which is the one that's going up on the website at the moment. So BibleContexts.com. There's uh, four free chapters there all the time, and it revolves around. So it's all the chapters in the, the different volumes become available uh, over time. And uh, there's a good place where you can discuss things and disagree with me, and that's the best thing to do. <laughs> well, you're very kind. Well, I, I, on behalf of Premier Christianity readers, uh, thank you for some stimulating material over many years um, that have just you know challenged people's presuppositions and made them think a lot. So... Uh, thank you for that. And thank you, too, for this um, this illuminating look at, uh, at Christmas. I hope people will forgive you as uh, as perhaps the, 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 those scout leaders didn't um, for messing with their thinking on this, uh, this key area. Thank you very much. It's been fun talking with you. It was a great joy to talk with David Instone Brewer. Do check out Premier Christianity's magazine archive for articles by him. PremierChristianity.com was where you'll find it. And of course, it includes his articles on Christmas. If you're due to preach this Christmas, you could do worse than check these out as background to what you might say and a stimulation for your own talks. Also, David mentioned his own website at BibleContexts.com, which is full of free and valuable material to give you fresh insight into the Bible for your own personal study or as you communicate its truth to others. I hope you have appreciated this insight into what was likely to have been happening at Christmas and given you some fresh insight and admiration for Jesus, whose price for his special birth would have been the stigma of being regarded unfavorably throughout his earthly life. Every week it's my joy to talk with Christian leaders and people who are experts on leadership themes uh, do get in touch with me if you have ideas of topics that you think I should cover or of people you think I should talk to. As you anticipate the Christmas season, may God give you something fresh to reflect on as you worship him for intervening so wonderfully in our world that we might know life in all its forms. This is Andy Peck thanking you for your company. See you next time. You're listening to The Profile.
Thank you, Andy, for bringing us that great interview this week on the Profile Podcast. This show is brought to you by the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you enjoyed this episode, you are sure to love the magazine, which features news, analysis, opinion on all that God is doing in the UK church and beyond. Check out brand new articles published every day on the biggest issues facing the church and the world at premierchristianity.com. We'll be back on Friday with another in-depth conversation with a leading Christian right here on the Profile Podcast. Join us then.